Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. And I can honestly say... It's one of the most disgusting experiences of my entire life. It's making me want to gag thinking about it. And I haven't been able to eat eggs since. Hello and welcome to another episode of But Why, the podcast is all about digging into big questions and tricky topics via honest conversations. This week, we're going to be talking about sex. My guest today is a highly specialised clinical psychologist and certified psychosexologist, easy to, not that easy to say, and is recognised as a national expert in the theory and practice of therapy around all aspects of sexual well-being and function. She's also the author of Mind the Gap, The Truth About Desire and How to Future-Proof Your Sex Life. So, without further ado, let me introduce to you Dr. Karen Gurney. Hello! Hello, thank you for having me here. Oh, pleasure. I'm really, really glad to, to do this. We managed to have a really good chat at our mutual friend, Helen of the Scummy Mummies and author of uh, Get Divorced, Be Get Happy. Get Divorced, Be Happy. We Got did. There. That was a great night. Wasn't it? It was like the first kind of uh, tiptoeing back into real life and it felt so nice, didn't it? It really did. It was a great night. So I always like to start with three very important questions. Mm-hmm. How are you really? What star sign are you and what's your favourite biscuit? (laughs) I am actually pretty good. Like, happy that the kids have gone back to school and (laughs) that life is kind of settling down a little bit. I've got that, Mm -hmm. like, autumn vibe of, like, like, let's get stuff done. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm Taurus and um, definitely um, shortbread. Shortbread, it's a classic. Mm, It's a classic. It's coated in sugar. what's, What's not to love? And extremely buttery. But do you have a preference on shape or are you um, just no, any, any no, shortbread? No, I do not discriminate any. No. Yeah, it's funny why I wouldn't, I always forget about shortbread. It feels like it's a, it's, it's a bit of an outlier in the biscuit world. It's just its own brilliant thing, isn't it? It is. And I've got those wonderful memories of like my nan having those kind of like tartan shortbread tins yes. with the plastic insert just full of all different shapes of shortbread I've got wonderful memories of that same yeah and I guess then they are kind of tied up with quite treaty occasions because they're not like the, the biscuit you just have at home yeah they're always in those tartan boxes <laughs> it's wonderful I hope people would generationally keep buying tartan boxes of shortbread I don't want that to kind of be something that peters out I'd hate that too that would be really sad maybe that's what's going to be my thing I'm going to just like own it just <laughs> Yeah, it's really delicious. Yeah, definitely a winner for me. Yeah, I'm, I'm pro shortbread too. So uh, where to begin with your brilliant book that I've got here that I've been there it is. reading? 
but it's one of those books I try, I'm trying to read it I always read before I go to bed but there's so much information it's 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 a lot of really amazing theory in there so on the one hand I'm, I'm loving reading it but on the other I'm really trying to absorb it how did you get into this field of work and um, what was yeah what did you want to do with it when you started or what are your ambitions well, it's interesting, actually, because when I was doing my doctorate in clinical psychology, so it's a bit like a medical doctor, you do an undergrad degree as a psychologist, you do a couple of years working in relevant fields, then you do a three-year uh, postdoc where you rotate around different specialties. I, I didn't have any desire to work in this field until I was due to do a specialist placement in another area. It was actually going to be adolescent eating disorders. Um, mm. and my placement supervisor got pregnant and couldn't take me on placement. At the last minute, they were like scrambling around to find me this year-long specialist placement, my final year. And they said, what do you think about sex? And I was like, yeah, I mean, sounds good. Like, it's never boring, mm. is it? Interesting. So let's give it a go. And um, that really opened my eyes to the perfect specialty for me. And I've been working in the field now qualified in 2004 so that's like I don't know 17 years or something I've been working as a clinical psychologist in sex and it's wide like there's a lot of stuff that you do in the field when you work as a clinical psychologist in sex but I am super interested in sexual function sexual pleasure sexual enjoyment sexual problems and I've been running services in the NHS um, dealing with those things probably for the last 13 mm -hmm. 13 14 years um, and I'm just so fascinated in it because sex is really political. Sex therapy is really political. There's so much of it that kind of brings in different elements of what I enjoy about being a clinical psychologist. So, you know, you get to work with couples, you get to work with families sometimes, because if it's about young kids and their relationship, teenagers and their relationship to sex, you get to work with gender politics, you get to work with other aspects of kind of intersectionality. Um, you get to work with stigma and shame and you get to be the person in a therapy context who people sometimes bring their kind of biggest worries to that they haven't spoken mm. to anyone else about and mm. that they are terrified about. And the other aspect of it is that sexual problems are also really easy to solve. So it's very rewarding doing sex therapy because change happens very quickly and easily. So it's just the perfect job for me. Do you believe that to be true then? Yes. The, the, how so? So as we'll probably get to talking about today, and, and really the reason I wrote the book is that much of the problems that people bring to the therapy room, whether they attend alone or with a partner um, about sex, are actually not problems within them or problems even within their relationship but problems outside of the therapy room so how we see sex mm -hmm. as society so desire is a perfect example of that it's the reason I wrote the book we really as a society are just kind of grossly out of kilt with how we understand desire and how desire really works and that's the reason we've got 35% of women in the UK worried that they're not they don't have any interest in sex and uh, fifteen percent of Is men in the UK. Yeah, so it's not because thirty-five percent of women in the UK have a problem with their desire. It's because, um, as a society, we don't understand desire. So they believe that they do, and they're distressed about it, and their partners probably believe that they do, but they don't have a problem with it. And that's how sex therapy often works very quickly. Is that much of the work that we do is about saying, well. 
where have you got this idea that X? And actually, mm. the science tells us this. If you go away and you do this thing differently, you will see something different happening. And that's what happens. So typically, I work with couples for six sessions. Um, and it can be longer. People can, if privately especially, people can see people as long as they want. But you don't really need more than that. It's relatively quick really? work. And considering the the potential impact that sexual problems can have on personal well-being, on relationship satisfaction, on relationship stability and security, it's it's wonderful to be able to create that change. There is really no other therapeutic field that could could claim that. I mean, CBT can sometimes have quite quick results, but yeah, such positive outcomes it, yeah is a, is a great place to be. Going back a step, I, there's there's so much about your book that I love, but even that you redefine sex in the beginning of it and, and what what that is, and also what good sex is. Yeah, so we have a. a a very kind of set um, what what we call sexual script in our society, don't we, of how sex should look, particularly if you're in a heterosexual relationship. There's an idea that sex is uh, A, then B, then C, then it's finished. And um, we know that from sex research, because if you ask people to say, what does sex look like? People will often recount that sexual script, you know, bit of kissing, bit of touching each other's genitals, maybe a bit of oral sex penetrative vaginal sex then it's finished and what's interesting about those sexual scripts is not only do we know they're changing for younger generations younger generations of straight people or uh, people of all sexualities but also those sexual scripts are generally different in queer relationships where they're a little bit looser and that's because um, we don't really talk about those types of sex as a society. So, yeah, we have a really strict idea of what sex looks like, especially for people in heterosexual relationships, which is a massive risk because we know that the more you have sex that looks the same way, the more that depletes your desire over time because our brains just don't like predictability. They're just they're not turned on by the same type of thing over and over again. Um so trying to broaden that out and trying to think about, well, when we talk about sex, what do we mean? And also, I like to try and get people to think about their sex lives and their sexuality as being something that doesn't just happen during that one sexual act. So, for example, I might work with a lot of couples who are not having as much sex as they would like, and that feels like a problem for them. But there isn't anything sexual happening between them or individually for them at all for like, you know, three weeks of the month. And then all of a sudden, one of them will say, it's been ages, should we have a shag then? And then there's, you know, a physical sexual act that happens. Um, that's the hardest way to maintain desire by having kind of no um, link to each other sexually the rest of the time, you know, no flirtation, no passionate kissing that isn't about sex, no kind of innuendo, no kind of bum grabs in the kitchen. Um, so I try and get people to think about their sex lives as something which are happening all the time, both in the way they invest in themselves. And for some people, that's about taking care of their body. Um, you know, they, they feel more sexual when they feel strong or they feel good in their body or when they kind of think about sex on the way home from work or listen to audio erotica or watch porn or whatever it is. And the way they um, engage with their sexuality with their partner or partners the rest of the time. So is there 
what I call sexual currency, how much sexual currency runs between the two of you on a typical day or week. And if there is none, that's a risk to desire. Which way? Does that, does that answer Yeah, it question? does. And I think it's fast. I rambled on No, a no, bit. you didn't. It was, it's fascinating. <laughs> and, you know, my head is going to straight to a place where I'm sure a lot of my listeners are, which is what happens when you have kids? And, yes. and, and it is the for all the reasons we know because your body's changed because you're physically very touched out with other humans with having people on you all the time because I think in order and especially in the early bits of parenting your brain is so in that survival mode you haven't really got the time to be yeah fantasizing in any way you you don't even know what's going on to be honest with you and yeah and and your sense of self has gone let alone yeah projecting that self out in a flirtatious way so yeah what's your advice for yeah and and again I'm always really worried about that I remember with my first child you've got that whole oh we should have sex again after this this amount of time postpartum and and then you yeah with subsequent children you stop worrying about that but it's all the that feels like another societal script the, the the answer to um, sure future proofing your relationship long term is to make sure you tick that box and it just it couldn't be further yeah. from the truth so many good questions in that so I think talking about kids is super important because at different stages as you've pointed out of um, actually even from trying to conceive for some people into pregnancy and then postpartum the immediate bit and then kind of post six months or post a year after, there are all kinds of different things happening, as you've said. And um, one of the things that um, I like to say to people who kind of ask me what they should be doing about this is don't worry about anything till after a year. So um, we know from sex research that kind of um, most people after a year have been able to go back to some type of sexual relationship, although it's important to say it's not going to be the same as it was before for all the reasons we've talked about. Tiredness and lack of time are massive um, desire killers and massive barriers to our sex lives. And that's okay. And one of the things I kind of wish people knew, but isn't talked about enough really, is the impact of breastfeeding on our sex lives as well. So the impact of um, the hormones that are needed to keep breastfeeding going, prolactin, saps desire and can make penetrative sex painful. So it's also really normal to have you know, zero desire, not for just all the other reasons you mentioned, like birth injury, tiredness, overwhelm, stress, you know, all of that, but for the impact of breastfeeding. So certainly if people are breastfeeding, I say, forget about it until afterwards. But one of the things that I do like to encourage parents of kids of any age to think about, maybe not newborns, because you know, you've got too much on your plate then, but say from six months onwards, is what are the functions of sex for you and your partner and your relationship? And how can you meet those in other ways while sex isn't happening? Because it's really okay for sex not to be on the agenda for a long period of time. We know, in fact, that people with kids under five have the lowest level of sexual satisfaction than any time in their life. So if anyone's listening, (laughs) all of those that have had kids under five are like, yep. So if anyone's listening who's got a kid at home, whether they've got three kids or however many kids they've got, and their kids are under five, one of them's under five, this is the time when 
like you need to batten down the hatches and don't worry about it too much. It will get better. But what can we do while we're waiting for it to get better? Um, and that's where I like to, people to think about the function that sex serves. So there's a couple of exercises. I don't know if you've read them in my book yet, which are just about understanding your motivations for sex. So um, what are the things that you get from sex and your partner gets from sex? Is it about feeling attractive? Is it about feeling connected to each other? Is it about feeling that the relationship is good and okay? Is it about marking yourselves out as a couple and not just parents or housemates? What is it that you enjoy about sex? What 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 do you get from it other than pleasure? And those are the things that can often be met by other means or by thinking about sexual currency. So if you know that your partner, um, it's really important for them to know that you still fancy them. That's one of the one of the things, one of the reasons they seek out sex is because they want that affirmation that you're still attracted to them. You don't have to be having sex to get that message across. Um, you know, you can be overwhelmed with all the stuff that the school run and dealing with kids brings but still prioritise taking 10 seconds to grab them before they leave for work or whatever whatever it is and just have a passionate kiss. At a time when nothing else can happen, you know, at a time when sex can't happen. Um, and so I suppose that's why, I, especially thinking about new parents, I try and get people to think about sex as something which is always part of your relationship because then it doesn't matter how often you're having sex. If people still feel connected, if they still feel attractive and attracted to another partner, if they still feel desired in that way, often people can withstand long periods of time without any physical um, sexual acts happening. Um, so that was part of your question. Um, and there was something else you mentioned, and it was about, I think it was about frequency. No, there's a, actually a couple of things as you're talking now. Go on. In your book, book you something that really was a light bulb moment for me that good sex is when you're in your bo- in your body not in your mind yes for whatever reason whether that's you being self-conscious about your body whether you're you're stressed about all the things you've got to do you're worried about someone one of the kids walking in and I think if you remember that you can understand a lot why it can be so challenging with kids under five because yes. you, because of the overwhelm that we is is so well documented it's very absolutely. hard to get out of your head absolutely and it's good for each of us to know that about ourselves. Um, how easy do we find it generally in life to be in the moment and how generally distracted are we by other thoughts and to-do lists and things that need to be done? Because all of that affects sex as well. And we know that there are kind of a number of key distractions which affect um, women particularly, such as distractions around body image and what, what your body looks like in certain positions or or how it is at this moment in time and to-do lists mental to-do lists and it's interesting because there's a piece of sex research that says if the division of labor in your household is equal you generally experience more desire and I think that's connected to that idea of if you feel um, regardless of the gender of your partner if you feel you're the only person holding on to that mental to-do list yeah that in itself is exhausting because you're Mm. you're like we we could have sex but no one's made the lunches for tomorrow no one's replied to that whatsapp about what you're going to wear for non-book day whatever well book day whatever it is so 
so yeah, there's much more to distraction than meets the eye there. But I would say that there's really two interesting things about being in your body and not in your head and not being distracted around sex. And one of them is that we know it can change. So we know that people who practice mindfulness see shifts in their ability to stay present in sex and see increases in their desire. So that's really interesting. So it's flexible. It doesn't always have to be the case. Um, And the second is, it's worth just acknowledging it as like a normal thing that will get in the way. And if you are people who often think about having sex late at night, and late at night is where you run through your mental to-do list, it's probably not the best time for you. So true. It's like the perfect storm, isn't it? It is the perfect storm. Yeah. And anyway, and late exhausted. at night is bad for anyone. I just, I think, don't think anyone should be having sex late at night. Do you really? Yeah, unless they're like late night people, because especially for, for parents, I know we've been talking about parents for a bit, but you're knackered by that time. And tiredness is a real desire killer. And mm. nobody wants to go to bed and then think about staying up for a period of time. I'm much more a fan of if you're short on time, then the best time to think about going to bed and seeing what happens next is after the kids are in bed, but before dinner. Wow. You know, if you can make that window when... I'm saying that like that's the most radical concept. <laughs> it's just that, I mean, no one wants to be hungry, but... <laughs> But no one wants to be too full either, do they? There's nothing worse than being really stuffed. Um, It could be after dinner, as long as you've not, you know, gorged yourself on bow buns or whatever. (laughs) But but not at bedtime. I just don't think it's a good time for most people. I really don't. No, but this is all these kind of ideas that we have or these habits that we fall into that end up causing us yeah to be stuck in a rut i suppose but also i was really interested about this idea of these unrealistic standards these ideas of what we a we think we should be doing or b what we think other people are doing and comparing ourselves against that and you talk about this three times a week people get fixated Mm -hmm. on yeah that's that's a big one and i still don't know where that idea comes from but i i can tell you it's like super prevalent and it's what everybody says when i ask them how often do they think they should be having sex people always say two to three times a week and it's not borne out by anything that actually happens in people's like sex lives that we know from worldwide data um but it's what people consistently say and it's the it's like this benchmark that they hold themselves to account to and think well we're not having enough sex um it's fascinating for two reasons one because we know that it's not actually what's happening and that you know the average uk adult um in my age bracket so kind of 35 to 44 year old age bracket having sex about twice a month and that a third of people in and out of relationships under 44 are having sex um not at all and you know in the last month so uh, it's a lot less than people mm. think that it is and they're using that as a way of feeling guilty and bad about mm. how their sex life matches up to their friends but also what's fascinating about it is that frequency is just such a red herring when it comes to a measure of how good our sex life is because it doesn't really tell us anything about how much pleasure we felt how life expanding it was how completely absorbed in it we were versus distracted 
um, how connected we felt to the other person and our bodies. We could be having sex once a week, once every two weeks, that actually pushes us further and further apart from our partner and actually isn't that pleasurable and is quite formulaic and is reducing our desire over time. That's not good sex. No matter how often you're having it, um, you'd be better to have it once a month, once every two months, once a year, where it's the best sex you've ever had. Um, You know, so the frequency thing is fascinating because it's it's just so, it's such an odd way of measuring something, how often, but it's, it's quantity versus quality, basically. But the other kind of, you know, you talked about things that we think to be true that actually get in the way of how we evaluate our own sex life. The other big one, the reason I wrote the book really, is this idea that you should spontaneously feel like sex with your partner out of the blue, often in a long-term relationship. And that myth, uh, again, we know not to be true. We know that, um, yes, there are different levels of desire that we feel at the start of relationships, but kind of 18 months, uh, you know, two years in, that the majority of women will say they never or rarely, so like once a month, feel like sex out of the blue with their long-term partner. And we know that to be normal and not a problem with desire. And so the way we are understanding it is that we should just kind of sit and wait to feel desire. And of course, that doesn't come because it's normal to not feel that out of the blue in a long term relationship, no matter how much you love your partner or how content you are. And actually, what we should really be doing is understanding how to trigger our desire and that type of desire, which we call responsive desire. We can have as much of that as we want to have, but it we need to know, we need to understand that and know how to trigger it. It's so interesting as you're talking, I'm thinking it reminds me of exercise, which is something that I love, but I know that I still have to force myself into the gym regularly. And then as soon as I'm doing it, I enjoy it and I know how good it makes me feel after, but I don't find it weird that I have to sometimes you know, twist my arm into doing it. And That's I don't feel exactly shame, shame about it because That's I'm secure exactly in that. But I'm ashamed. Yeah. And it's just the same. So we know that much of the time people's motivations for sex are not sexual. So it's not that they're feeling horny, but their motivation is, I want to feel horny or I want to have some fun or I want to feel pleasure or I want to connect with that person. So the the motivations are a bit like when you go to the gym, right? You're not feeling like you've got all this energy to burn off and you need to like lift something or run. You sometimes do. But mostly your motivation is, I want to achieve that new goal. I want to push myself further. I want to be healthy. I want to live a long life. Mm. And um, I, I kind of like it when people compare sex to exercise because they are very similar in that we should see it as something that if we want to maintain um, you know, a healthy sex life or a healthy body, you kind of need to take purposeful and intentional action mm. to do that and prioritize it. And just like you've said, you might think, I'm not quite in the zone right now, but I know that if I get my gym kit on, if I put Mm. my workout tracks on, if I get myself down there, I know that that feeling is triggered. And the amount of people who say to me, I never feel like sex, but um, afterwards 
and my desire emerges as we get into it and afterwards I'm like why don't we do that more often mm. and that is like the number one p- thing people say and it's a perfect example of responsive desire it might not be there from the outset but as long as you're motivated to see whether it can follow and it might not follow and that's cool as well um bit like sometimes you go to the gym you don't always feel it doesn't do work out yeah and you're like oh i'm not really here into it i'm just gonna go home um as long as you feel able to dip your toe in the water and know that mm. the other person will be happy if you then step back again and go you know what i'm not actually feeling it this kiss is nice but it's not going anywhere for me that's the way to play it it's mad that our minds can't remember that in both instances like the the highs of both are so big but your brain tricks you out of it and you know it it really is a useful comparison because when you're you're young you just don't need to try that hard at any of those things I I say relatively fit and your your desire stays high and then as you get older you're like oh why you feel bad that you're you're not able to inhabit your 20 year old body yeah there's a whole load of life that is got in the way isn't there in both cases yeah and there's other competing demands on your time Mm. and priorities aren't there and I suppose that's where that's where you know sex can be most challenging in longer term relationships is that there's plenty of other ways that you might be relating to that person that aren't particularly sexual you know like talking about who's going to put the bins out or you know (laughs) All the, all the kind of really mundane conversations that you have. And that just makes it a bit harder for us to be in, like, relating the to them as a sexual being yeah. mode. And I suppose it's the same with, with exercise, isn't it? It's like if you're at an exercise camp and it's all you're doing, you're probably in that zone quite a lot. But when you have yeah. to finish work, take off that Switch hat and move over, it sometimes needs a little bit of motivation. And as you say, knowledge that that will emerge. And we know it often does emerge. Like Desire is really easy to trigger. It's really easy to trigger. But I suppose one of the things that's probably worth mentioning, and it fits with your exercise analogy as well, is that it also has to be rewarding. So if you leave the gym and you think, oh, I'm an absolute failure, um, you know, those people were looking at me, I'm no good at that and actually that was really unpleasant the next time you're contemplating going to the gym that memory is going to be in your mind and it's less motivating Mm. and it's the same with sex so it's worth kind of having a look at your sex life and going well how motivating is that event like is there equal pleasure in it for me um do I feel a bit muted like what sides of myself I can show because we've been together ages and I feel a bit like I'd like it to be a bit more this, but we've got into the habit of it being that. Is it a bit too predictable? Because if that's the case, a bit like with exercise, it will take much more motivation to Mm. get there. The more rewarding it is, the more novel it is. And I don't mean novel like, you know, you have to dress as a banana. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) you can. What does it for you? I mean, novel like it doesn't always end in the same thing. Um, it's not always in the same place. It's not always including the same sexual act in the same order. Sometimes it doesn't involve any penetration at all, whatever it might be, you know. Um, The more of those things you get, pleasure, novelty, reward, the easier it is to think, well, I might 
see where this goes if a partner initiates or if you're thinking of initiating. So yeah, rewards really important. Mm, which feels like I mean this is I've, I've we've skipped massive bits of your research, but your research about two things about the orgasms and the gender divide of that and also oh, yeah. the stuff the stuff around oral sex i'm wondering which we've got time to talk about let's try and do them both okay um which do you think you'll have to rein me either? in i'll waffle on yeah so let's talk about the orgasm gap so for people that don't know about this um we know from several large-scale research studies that when um when people masturbate, uh, people of all genders masturbate, they can usually orgasm in like a couple of minutes at a rate of about like 98% of the time. So there is no gender difference in ability to masturbate and time to orgasm. So there is a bit of a myth that women's orgasms are trickier than men's and it is not true because we know that, you know, if, if there's masturbation, it's all the same. However, when you put people together you see an orgasm gap emerging. So um, the biggest gap is between when women and men have sex together. And then what happens in that type of sex is that men's orgasm usually stays high at a similar rate to when they masturbate, so about 98%. Um, and women's orgasm rates drop to about 65% with a regular partner and 18% with casual sex, with hookup sex. So... Uh, the same thing doesn't happen with women who have sex with women. So the, there isn't the same orgasm gap. It's something like 86% um, of orgasms and the same with men who have sex with men. So we know that the orgasm gap is about what happens when men and women have sex together. And that is very much rooted in the sexual script we talked about earlier. So the idea that sex is all about penis and vagina, which although plenty of women enjoy, only 20% of women can orgasm from that. And, um, you know, if, if women think for a second what they do when they masturbate, it probably looks quite different to what is the main course of sex with their partner. And therein lies the problem. Um, and uh, what else was I going to say there about the orgasm gap? Um, what was I up to? You were saying, so women and women, it stays the same. What's it? Yes, yes. Sex so. script of um, men and women. So it's partly about how men and women have sex together in that sexual script, which is why it's really good to mix it up, not just for novelty, but for pleasure. Um, but it's also about the ways in which women are socialized to be sexually. So all of those things that are encouraged in women um, outside of sex, like being polite, putting other people's needs before your own, making sure everyone else is satisfied before you are, not being too assertive, etc., etc., all bleed in to our sex lives. And so we know that it can be really difficult for women, especially in casual sex, to say things like, I'm actually not that into penetrative sex. I'd just like you to go down on me and that's all I want. And anyone listening who's feeling like, oh my God, I could never do that. That's case in point. So that's the orgasm gap. And um, of course, the rate at which we experience pleasure, you know, it's not all about orgasms, but orgasms are a good indication of a reward for sexual activity. So mm -hmm. definitely is important. Yeah. And then uh, that, as a nice segue, the research about um, oral sex and, you know, the ideas that men versus women have about obligation and, yeah. Yeah, so this is an interesting one as well. So um, we know that men enjoy... 
and, and this is uh, it's I'm talking about heterosexual sex here um not to um to disadvantage other sexualities but rather that's where most of the sexual problems lie so that's why I'm privileging those conversations um we know that men enjoy giving oral sex more than women enjoy giving oral sex to men so we know that to be true but we know that the rates with which women um, give oral sex are twice as high as the rates of men returning it. Now, some of that is about the patriarchy. Some of it is about the idea of serving other people and not getting your own needs met. Some of it is about um, our societal ideas of vulvas being something shameful, something we're embarrassed about, worries about body confidence of people getting up, up and close and personal with our vulvas um, but it's something really interesting to notice about um, what we know about who does what to whom most often and what that tells us yeah it's so mad isn't it mm-hmm. and yeah and just I find it quite strange we're a similar age and it, it it's always that thing where I thought I was um, a quite clued up, empowered woman. And then there's conversations I've actually been having with my friends recently about we're at that point when we're reflecting on our behaviour in the twen- in our 20s mm-hmm. and early 30s and, and what our ideas around sex were, you know, when we were all, none of us were in re- long-term relationships. And I just, if I went back now, how would I do it differently? And yeah. what would I tell myself? Or, or probably what, and this is a nice kind of way to wiggle towards the end. What conversations do we want to be having with the next generation? Yes. About about what sex looks like, how to conduct yourself. And it's really difficult. There's a real um, element of uh, you have to go on your own sexual mm-hmm. journey and your own exploration. And I don't think it's right for as a mum to... to get in there with too many details but there are big picture messages I think that we want to try and get across yeah I feel really passionately about this actually not just for kind of like the next generation but also just thinking about how I raise my kids I've got two boys and just thinking about what I instill in them and um I think there are a couple of things there that are super important um for me um I talk in the book, I think, I think it's chapter two, which is all about gaps in the in our foundation. So all the things that make us susceptible to sexual problems and challenges of our sex life. And a lot of it is around the language that we have or don't have about sex, our comfort in talking or not talking about sex and um, knowing about kind of bodily autonomy and consent. And so um, for us as parents, we try and do a lot of work. I mean, ours are like five and nine. Um, so from the when they were very young, we do a lot of work around like naming body parts accurately. So penis, vulva, testicles, all the words, you know, no shame in those words. Um, we talk a lot about um, making sure that they understand about bodily autonomy and consent. So who can do what to you and when and 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 try and back that up with our actions. So not getting them to kiss relatives when they don't want to. And not getting them to fill all the food, you know, finish all the food on the plate when they feel full. Um, so listening to their body and being able to assert their own boundaries. Um, and we also do quite a lot with them about being critical of like what they see on TV or social media. I mean, they're too young for social media, but like their versions of it. So, you know, when they're watching films, 
try and get them to understand how that scene like was created and it's not very realistic so it's like a driving film you know it's like that's not really how people drive is it to start Mm -hmm. the early stages of porn literacy to try and get them to be critical about what they see and that it's not always as it is it's a bit of fun um so yeah I think it's never too early to start and you know, in our house, there's obviously a ton of books around and stuff. My partner works in a similar field to me. So you can imagine there's just sex stuff everywhere. But we very much like to talk about like sex is not a dirty word. It's not something to be ashamed of or to be kept silent. Um, you know, we'll tell them whatever they want to know at the age they want to know it. And I think that's the only way all of us are going to ra- raise a new generation that's are able to assert their own boundaries, listen to other people when they say, actually, I'm not really sure about that, and be critical of the stuff they might accidentally come across online because we know that happens younger and younger. Yeah, that's the um, the critiquing, yeah, TV is, is actually, it's such an important thing, not just in, for porn literacy, but social media literacy yes. particularly. And, yeah, you... As an adult, we implicitly understand reality or staged reality, but that is, it's really hard for them to understand. So it's something I'll definitely yeah. instill. And then as you were talking in my book, But Why, I did a bit of sex education mm-hmm. stuff in there. And a great bit of research that I found is that people are often worried that they're going to be giving too much information too soon to their kids, but actually, children have this kind of inbuilt filter yeah so if i'm if i've had a sex chat with both my boys and they're similar to yours one's eight and one's six and it was really interesting to watch when the six-year-old kind of dropped out of the conversation he kind yeah. of got the, the the basics and then my eight-year-old went on to ask some more questions yes and so within reason keep it very simple keep it quite factual and maybe yeah. filter filter and be led by them you don't need Absolutely. to be like going fully in, they will have the chat with you I hope but the important thing is people often worry it's too young if you're not doing it now then it will be much harder and more awkward to have it when they're 12 13 yep. 14 when it becomes really crucial um, if it's just another conversation it should not have that shame around that's it. right and we know that countries that have better sex education have lower teenage pregnancy rates like there's a direct correlation between how much you do it and the risks that young people have and um, when you were talking about yours it just got me thinking also about the importance of talking about sex as something fun and pleasurable and I think quite often that gets lost in sex ed it's all like oh sex is something (laughs) scary something terrible is going to happen like you're going to get an STI it's going to be embarrassing you're going to get pregnant and you won't want to be and um, you know when my kids ask me about it I say sex is something really fun that adults do together and when you're a grown-up you'll get to do it too but uh, we'll talk more about that as you get on but I don't want them to think like oh sex is something terrifying or um, something where some harm will come to me actually it can also be really fun and that's a good message I think you're so right. It, it was really sh- shrouded in you must never do these things and you must never like clock up your numbers and yeah, you're, yeah. you're surefire to get STIs. And of course, especially you for s- women, only yeah. bad things can come of it is what you're basically told as a teenager. It's so true. It's so true. And then you've got these real mixed messages because you're these girls that are appearing to be much more sexually confident are, are held up as amazing. But then if you've got good girl tendencies, which I definitely have, I'm definitely hearing the voices of authority. Mm-hmm. And no wonder you end up in a very confused state about it. And 
And it's a complicated thing. It's again, we're, it, I was talking with friends about like early experiences and how awful they are. But you've got to learn it, haven't you? And yeah, and yeah. yeah. And if you're if you're only ever sold an idea that the best you can get from sex is the absence of disease, shame, pregnancy. <laughs> then the bar is very low. You've not even got a concept of pleasure. Like, all you want to do is have the sex, it not be too embarrassing, not get an STI, not get pregnant, and that is equivalent to a success for many kind of teenage girls of our generation. And that is not what I want for my kids. I want them to to have pleasure and, like, satisfaction and, like, mutual consent as like the things which are the measure of whether it's good or not <laughs> and the rest of it you know you need to think about of course but it should not be the primary focus no do you from the work that you do do you feel like there is there has been a shift that things have moved forward i'd like to say so and sometimes when i'm on instagram obviously i do a lot of stuff on instagram i i feel like that's the case but i think it's just the circles i move in and then the people I follow and then when people come to see me for sex therapy particularly people in their teens and 20s I'm reminded of how much work there is to do and how difficult people still find it to assert their own wants and needs and I I think there's a long way to go yeah well the work that you're doing is really important and again I think this is a, probably not a whole different conversation. I think Instagram as well can sometimes be problematic. It, you can almost add it the other way, where you think, oh, my word, everyone else is so liberated. They're doing this, 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 and this. What, you know, why aren't I more yeah. like that? And yeah. the reality is somewhere much more in the middle, isn't it, behind closed doors? Yeah, absolutely, and indeed. And, you know, at least we have some experience of life without social media to... Yeah critique that a little bit yeah. um, and let's hope we can encourage our young people to be the same when they've grown up with it and I think a big thing that I think is is being sure to have um, those conversations with your friends I think for me that was a big shift when you're in your tw- teens and 20s you do talk about it with your mates and then you get to this point when you end up in long-term relationships and suddenly it doesn't feel appropriate to be hanging yeah. out with dirty laundry but actually with the things that we're talking about where you're assuming that your relationship is in a you know your sex life isn't as good as it should be but now we know that actually anyone with a person a child under five is likely to be a similar situation there's always real power in knowing you're not yeah you're not alone in whatever you're going through so so true and um you know we haven't talked about communication much today but it is worth mentioning that we know that being able to talk about sex is one of the biggest predictors of a good sex life. Makes sense. And so doing that with your friends is obviously being socialized by your family to do that from a young age puts you in a great position, which is why we need to do it more. But being able to talk about it with your friends, being able to talk about it with the personal people you're having sex with, that is the biggest predictor of sexual satisfaction than anything Mm. else. And so talking with friends is actually great practice just for saying it out loud. To then be able to perhaps say to your partner, you know how we always used to do that um I really miss that and I wouldn't like be great if we could do that more yeah um but getting the courage to say that when you're not used to talking about sex can be really hard so friends is a great way and and as you say to get a sense of what everyone else is doing which is probably nothing like what you think no and it's yeah but you're right it's just practicing the words because if the only words coming out of your mouth are don't forget the book bag it's really yep. hard to pivot to something more. Very in- difficult. Yeah, it is. Yeah. 
So don't forget the book bag, don't forget the book bag, don't forget the book bag. <laughs> Something like that. We're all good at saying that. Oh, my word. And this, yeah, yeah. How does life come like this? But it does. So to wind up, two things. Where can people find you and give a good shout out to your book if people haven't already understood that it's a great thing to read? All right. So um, you can find me at Instagram at the sex doctor. And um, yeah, I mean, I wrote the book, Mind the Gap. Um, the truth about desire and how to future proof your sex life because um, I essentially want less people to need to come and see me and um, to understand how desire works and what can get in the way but more importantly how you can have desire feature as much as you want it to in your relationship so yeah get it it's all over the place at the popular places yeah all the places you can get books yeah I always at this point want to pick it up and show the screen and then remember the audio and that doesn't really help but could, yeah I really recommend it and it's Thank the sort you. of book that I think yeah you would come back to at different points depending on what's going on with your life but it's really interesting it's really yeah. interesting thank you and um, it's been it's, it's been so nice getting messages from people um you know the reason as you know with your book it's funny writing a book isn't it you've got to think about why am I actually doing it we all know there's not loads of money in it it's like there's other reasons you might do it and for me um getting messages from people saying this book has changed my sex life um is the the reason I spent that eight months writing it yeah it's it's wonderful it means everything yeah I mean that's huge you're really as you say you can really shift things for people, mm. which, yeah, which is, and any, anything in life where you're in a spiral of shame, unfortunately is likely to grow and become worse. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's hard to think that anyone might be doing that. So yeah, it's really valuable. Thank well you. Done. Thank you. Well, well done. done on yours also. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yes. <laughs> it's not for the faint hearted, is it? <laughs> or so, any of it? No, certainly not. And one more question in the in the vibe of the whole overall podcast. If you can have an honest conversation with one person, who would it be, and what would you say? Oh, um, Everybody I've been makes thinking that noise. recently a lot about this. Actually, um, I think there's things that um, you know. I had a bit of grief recently, and when you have experience of grief, it just really makes you mm. think about how you sometimes save all the best sentiments about people till they're gone. And how sad that is. And I'm sorry this to, yeah. to bring this tone. No, but so I've just true. been thinking recently about my parents and about the things I don't know if they know that I think. And it would probably be that. I've been thinking a lot about that recently. Yeah, it's really mad that it gets saved for a eulogy. It really is. Like, wouldn't, well, what, what a wasted opportunity. Yeah, and we, we don't get to hear it then, do we? No, I did... Um, I've got recorded an episode, another episode this week about love with Natasha Lunn. Who's oh, yes. Conversation. Know, yeah, an amazing book. But we just need to go around telling the people that we love that we love them and why we love them. Yeah. More often. That's You're exactly never going to regret doing it. Never, ever. I, that's exactly it. Yeah, and it's, yeah, it's amazing what grief does to you for that. And, and at that point, you get that. It's such clarity. You know, this is actually the meaning of life. This is what I should be doing. And then one way and another, it kind of peters out, but yeah. it's, it's really important. Real perspective, isn't it? So, yeah, you would have an honest conversation with your parents. Well, you can action that. You can I can, do- I can. I mean, I, I, I do, but there's, you know, there's sometimes things I think I should say more about that to them. Yeah, and we were also talking about the things that end up about your partner or your parents that end up kind of grating on you 
will be the bits that one day you miss and yes to try and remember that yeah that that's a good one yeah I often think sometimes do the way around with that as well like the things that you initially were really drawn to can become the things that get a bit irritating I think yeah. it can work both ways yeah and um, try, and try and see them back through the eyes of being charming rather than really irritating yeah but yeah. it's easier said than done it's like all of it, it is easier said than done um well thank you so much it's been a, such a pleasure talking to you i feel like there's a, so much more that we could talk about but maybe we can do that at another point and yeah maybe it's, it's been, been great thanks so much for having my me. pleasure my pleasure oh well that was a honestly useful which is not a very um sexy word is it but yeah i think there's so much information in that conversation that I hope will be helpful to loads of people who are in the throes, particularly in the throes of early parenting, worrying about how their sex life compares to their sex life when they were younger, to other people, what the future of that looks like. And um, also loads of advice on how to get it back on track. Um, as I made clear, her book, Mind the Gap, is so, so useful. There is tons of information and loads of research into areas that I had assumed were one way. For example, the conversation around oral sex, but learned that we need to reconsider it. Um, yeah. And the important thing with any topics like this, don't sit there and worry about it and let it get worse. I think that you're the only person. There are things that you can do to get your sex life back on track or even get it into a good place in the first place. Don't just worry. That's my advice from from me. <laughs> what I'm talking rubbish. My brain's gone to see this Friday. And, um, yeah, if you're sitting here thinking things aren't as they should be or as I'd like them to be more importantly, not should, then please don't just continue to worry there are things that can be done i can recommend this book as a great starting point go follow karen on instagram and um, make small changes that hopefully will ladder up to getting things back to how you want them to be as she said normally it takes six sessions of sex therapy to get some happy customers so that can be you Thank you so much, Dr. Karen, for talking to me. Thank you guys for being here. That's another episode of But Why Under Wraps. Please do rate, review and subscribe. Share your thoughts on social media. Share the episode on social media. Get more people listening. If you want to get in touch, I'm always glad to hear from you. But why at clinicaltelford.com. I'm off to go and try and eat an egg. I had a horrible experience two weeks ago where I made a couple of boiled eggs. I ate the first one. It was fine went to eat the second one and as soon as I put it in my mouth I realised it was off and I can honestly say it's one of the most disgusting experiences of my entire life it's making me want to gag thinking about it and I haven't been able to eat eggs since but that saddens me immensely because I love eggs so I think it might be about time to get back on that horse so yeah I'm off to eat an egg have a lovely day and I'll look forward to catching up with you next week goodbye